0: According to historian Hilary Mantle, the past changes a little every time we retell it. And it was Napoleon Bonaparte who sardonically stated that history is the version of past events that people have decided to agree upon. Well, how do such matters impact the course of a nation's self-concept, and in particular, the United States of America? I'm Doctor Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America.
1: All my life, watching America, All my life, panic in America,
0: From WHRV Norfolk,
1: this is Watching America. Yeah. You have to run through the jungle and scuff up your feet. You just sing about Jesus and drink wine all day. It's great to be an American.
0: Some people are of the opinion that America is a cultural no melting pot. Others perceive the nation State as a grand mosaic of distinct peoples. Certainly, the country's complexity is without question, although persons have attempted to provide a unified cohesion of identity for the USA. Historically, various forecasters have vied for their own version of America at the neglect of others.
1: We will cross the mighty ocean just Charleston Bay. Sail away, sail away. We will cross the mighty ocean into Charleston be.
0: I am very pleased to welcome author and historian Colin Woodard. You probably are familiar with his previous works, amongst which are American Nations, a bestseller, New York Times bestseller, American Character, The Lobster Coast, The Republic of Pirates, and Ocean's End. His latest book by Viking Press is entitled Union. It's a look at the struggle to forge the story of the United States nationhood. Now, in this work, he looks at varying personalities, five in particular on the American horizon at various stages of its developing history, in particular, George Bancroft, William Gilmore Sims, Frederick Douglass, Woodrow Wilson, and Frederick Jackson Turner. It is my delight to welcome to Watching America you, sir, Colin Woodard to Watching America. Welcome.
2: Thank you very much. Pleasure
0: to be here. Um, You have said that there is not one singular American culture, but rather regional ones. Uh, You have said that there is a a kind of an interesting combination of assimilation and yet a dynamism of individual uh, regional uh, awareness, uh, perhaps unawareness at times. The new book is entitled Union. It is most certainly timely uh, because if there's ever been, in recent history at least, and I will preface it by saying recent history, um, an awareness of disunity, it is certainly with what's going on now. Let's go back to the paranarrative uh, of the, if you will, I, I don't know if we say mythology or at least, as I said before, para narrative of who Americans are. Uh, By looking at various personalities, we'll start with George Bancroft. Why did you start with him?
2: Well, the question I had at hand coming out of American Nations was that if, as I had argued in American Nations, we'd always been separate Americas, that there are these profound differences between the different colonial projects that had formed on the eastern and southern rims of what's now the United States. They had different ethnographic and religious and cultural characteristics. They uh, had different political aims and original intents and ideas about individual liberty or the common good, and they settled mutually exclusive stretches of much of what's now the United States and their legacy can be seen today, so that we're a federation that's balkanized of separate nations that wound up together through the accidental occurrence and victory of the War of Independence. And so that left the question uh, to me and maybe to many readers is to, okay, if that is the case, how is it that we ever came to convince ourselves or think otherwise that we were one United States, one America with a shared history and background and culture and purpose and origin story. Where did that origin story and and narrative of nationhood, if you will, come from? Who created it? When and why? And so in searching for that answer, I discovered that people didn't really know as late as the 1830s. They didn't have good answers to that. You ask somebody what their country was, and they'd say they're a Massachusettsian or a Virginian or a South Carolinian. And it was George Bancroft, who was the first person who packaged together and intentionally created a national story for the United States of itself. And so that's why I picked him, as I quickly discovered he was the key node to package together the first story. And so following this phenomenon from the beginning, I began with him and what he did.
0: Well, what was it within the man himself, Bancroft, that uh, really inspired uh, the dedication to go about creating such a narrative?
2: Well, I wanted to write this through people. It's, the book is written almost as a you know, a multiple biography, almost like a, a novel except it's the history. Yes. And I did that in part because understanding the ideas – Requires, as you suggest, understanding the people who came up with them, their experiences. You know how how were they born? Who were their family, and what what did they learn when they were growing up? Who were their friends and enemies? What was the cultural milieu they came from? What were the shaping forces in their in their youth and in their intellectual you know um, upbringing that led them to come up with what they did? And George Bancroft's story is really pretty remarkable, and it tells you a lot about the United States and its myth, if you will. He was um, he was very much a New Englander. He was from Massachusetts and was the son of a prominent congregational um, a minister, a descendant of the early Puritans, and he attended Phillips Exeter and Harvard. Uh, early on, he was born in 1800, and he graduated from Harvard in 1817 at 17 years old. And then he was plucked from that by the president of Harvard, President Kirkland, who wanted to transform Harvard from what was essentially a glorified boarding school into what we would more consider a modern research institution or research university, except no such thing existed yet in the United States or really anywhere outside of Germany, where these new universities based on scientific thinking were being created and offered something called a doctoral degree. And so he sent a cadre of his most promising students, including Bancroft, to Germany to get their doctorates in order to form the sort of shock troops of a new faculty who would transform academic life and research and intellectual thinking in Harvard and beyond in the United States. And so young George Bancroft ended up in Europe studying in Göttingen and in Berlin under the romantic German thinkers like Hegel and Herring, who were at that time, creating European ideas of nationhood, and so he took the ideas that he discovered there, and he had this this amazing several years in Europe, including a backpacking trip where, with letters of introduction from his professors, he you know hung out in dinner parties with Lafayette, you know danced with empresses, um, kicked around with Gita, you know went drinking wine in the Italian villa of Lord Byron and his. And his um, and his um, and his mate, and uh, and piled around with Washington Irving. He met all of these people, and through their influences, came home, and after failing in several projects, set forth to write this American story. And it was a story; it is a story that fuses the ideas of the early New England Puritans with uh, German ideas coming out of these Romantic nationalist uh, thinkers about historicism and such. It said that America was, that we were a chosen people, kind of like the early Puritans thought of themselves, and that we were tasked to do great things by God and he took from the germans this idea that nations are organisms that they unfold like from a seed from a from a predetermined plan to fulfill and achieve certain things and that america despite the fact that south carolina and virginia massachusetts and maine and the dutch settled area around new york city all seem to be very different places with different histories he posited that they were all planted with this same seed Secretly, unbeknownst to anybody, they were all growing in the same direction, the direction to create the United States and give it its task, which was to carry the ideals in the Declaration of Independence about the um, inherent equality of humans and their unalienable rights to liberty and the pursuit of happiness and to consensual self-government. To carry them forward through history for all of humanity to further freedom's project and across the continent, that we were destined to do all these things and in a sense couldn't fail. So all these ideas that are out there that you hear echoes of today of America as an exceptional place with a special role and task in the world and in history, and that perhaps God was on the side of the founders in creating all this, and also tied in theory to universal ideas that would include everybody. These things all draw back to Bancroft, and the epic 10-volume history he wrote that contained these ideas and disseminated them to an eager American public, transforming thoughts, movies, um, intellectual conversations, the way history was um, was taught about and written uh, for decades to come.
0: Well, Bancroft evidently saw the Declaration of Independence almost as a form of holy writ. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, I think that's fair to say that, uh, you know, at different points in his history, he describes essentially God getting involved in the founding period, and that these are, you know, it's no accident that Jefferson wrote down these words and that we're specially tasked to accomplish them. Not unlike the early Puritans were supposedly tasked with an errand in the wilderness um, themselves.
0: And incorporating the Old Testament, or if you will, the First Testament, the Hebrew Testaments, he saw the United States, what would become the United States at least, uh, full completely, uh, eventualized in the, the form of the New Promised Land.
2: Yeah, a covenanted people uh, creating a, yeah, a new and, and more godly society is what the Puritans were about. And this is reflected in the story that he told Americans about who they were and what their purpose was. And that this would unfold. You know, We could sit back uh, patiently and watch as history's you know, seed unfolded according to its plans to bring America to its destiny. And the best thing we could all do is cooperate with that which he, in fact, did because he didn't just sit around writing histories and talking about it. He became a statesman. He actually was, uh, you know, uh, the Massachusetts Democratic Party boss, nominee for governor there, and then— served in uh, President Polk's cabinet, both as Secretary of War and Secretary of the Navy, later as U.S. Ambassador to England and to to Germany. And while uh, a cabinet secretary, he personally was involved in giving the orders that led to the war with Texas and its annexation and to the uh, Navy uh, officers annexing portions of California. So he was an actor, not just a writer of these events.
0: Now, given that he had 10 volumes, uh, was he evenly inclined to disperse attention to the the origins of, of obviously the Spanish in the United States, Florida and what have you? Did he, did he acknowledge that or was it strictly a more Anglo-Saxon emphasis?
2: Well, it, there's an Anglo-Saxon emphasis, but also remember when he started this project in the 1830s, the, the conquest of much of New Spain had not yet taken place so you know we might have been destined to eventually arrive there but his history was a, a really a prehistory of the United States mm. you know, it took him to write these 10 volumes much of his very long life he didn't die until the 1890s in his 90s and it took him about you know 60 years of work to generate the ten volumes and their two annexes and that only really took him into the 1790s it was really a, um, a story of prehistory of the United States trying to show that this was all inevitable. And so in that prehistory, um, the Spanish areas of, you know, substantial area of what became the United States uh, wasn't even part of the agenda. And he didn't spend a lot of time concerned with New France or indeed with the Dutch experiment around New York City or the many other nuances because they you know, he, he was a Yankee. And when he wrote his first volume, he'd never really left the greater New England settlement area of, you know, New England, upstate of New York, and portions of the upper Great Lakes states. So he didn't realize that the cultural assumptions he had that were, you know, Yankee cultural assumptions tied back to the Puritans did not apply in the majority of the country. And it was only later that he started realizing this to some extent, but not allowing it to pierce the armor of his, um, very well-formed fundamental beliefs about the United States.
0: I may ask you with each of the prominent five names that we're going to go through uh, during this hour uh, the same question. When it comes to George Bancroft and his, if you will, um, sense of ethos and, and what America was and perhaps could be and should be, what was the most benign aspect in your estimation and what was the most malignant
2: The benign aspect and the one that holds promise for us and I think still speaks to us today is the idea that what bonds us together isn't, as in, say, Germany, an idea of a shared ethnicity, that we somehow share bloodlines or tribal ties, and that's what makes us a nation. He said that, no, what ties us together isn't a shared past, but our shared fealty to those ideals that we mentioned in the Declaration of Independence and those are pretty good ideals you know the mm. belief in the in the um in the inherent and universal equality of humans and in those inalienable rights are the things that are the best parts of the american tradition the things that i think americans when they really think about it are most proud of and that at times when other people in the world have turned their heads in a good way towards the united states it's been about those things which were Um, really pretty revolutionary things to state in the late 1770s And, and are still things that are contested all over the world and within the United States today. Now, Bancroft himself didn't um, stand and comport for those ideals any better than Thomas Jefferson, who wrote them, did. But the ideals themselves as an aspiration have remained with us ever since. And, you know, throughout the narrative of union, which lasts nearly a century, but we're seeing it played out on the streets today. And I think it's um, it's the only thing that can hold our diverse and balkanized federation together and has succeeded in holding it together and if we wish to continue forward in future, it's a, an idealistic and a pretty good set of things to have a, a, a nation dedicate itself to because, you know, nations need to have a story for themselves because they're abstractions. And we as individuals have to have a pretty good reason to sort of trick ourselves into belonging into something as abstract as a nation, whether it's, you know, something called Germany or France or Turkey or the United States.
0: If you're just joining us, you are listening to A Conversation on Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is author and historian Colin Woodard. His latest book is entitled Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. We've been speaking briefly about George Bancroft, the first personality examined in the book and considered. Now we move on to the second, William Gilmore Sims. What was the fascination with this personality?
2: Well, what I was expecting when I wrote the book is that the story I would be telling is the story of that um, civic nationalism we've just described, the story of the idea of America as being devoted to these ideals. But what I discovered instead very early in my research is these ideas were immediately countered and contested by a um, a vigorous... uh, Assertion of a separate nationhood narrative. And that was that no, we're the ethno state of the allegedly superior Anglo Saxon race, or perhaps ethno states, that the United States is uh, correctly a federation of the homelands of these various Anglo Saxon peoples, the various colonies and states at the time, and that the Anglo Saxon people are the ones whose genius allowed the writing of the Declaration and the Constitution. That Jefferson was clearly wrong when he made the statements he did, um, and that if they if they are to be taken as truth at all, it's the truth to be applied only to a subset of Americans, to the Anglo-Saxons and their, and their genius of being able to do this. Now, all of these ideas came from William Gilmore Sims and his circle of Southern intellectuals who were contemporaries of Bancroft and countered him early on. Sims was from South Carolina. He's largely forgotten today. But uh, he was the leading man of letters of the antebellum South and the Confederacy and, uh, and part of a circle of Southern intellectuals who articulated this idea early on and fought for it, uh, you know, through the events leading to the Civil War, the Civil War itself, and would pass the baton to others thereafter. And his experience was, of course, very different. He grew up in Charleston. And on the, uh, the the southern the southwestern frontier in the old Alabama and Mississippi territories, which were um, not at all like the areas of the uh, of the West that Bancroft had explored, he believed that uh, that the frontier uh, was a uncivilized place, and that only the um, well-born bearers of civilization could sort of tame and uh, and and civilized society sufficiently for everybody to uh, to, to live uh, aptly and properly, and that a republic is essentially a classical republic, that it's like ancient Greece and Rome, that naturally uh, most people are in servitude or enslaved, and a certain group of people have the liberty or privilege to practice democracy. And that was the society in which he lived in South Carolina, in the Antebellum period and uh, and later as a, uh, a plantation and slave lord himself. And it's one that he championed and believed to be uh, virtuous and true that, uh, and that that was what the United States should at a minimum uh, allow to take place in portions of the country and that perhaps more aptly there ought to be a subset, uh, you know, country or confederation that championed these ideals that he saw.
0: Well, in your previous work, American Nations, which you divide uh, America, the United States into what would become the United States into 11 sections. I believe he referred to this area as tidewater and um, there's allusions to pretensions on the part of the persons that lived in the region uh, in certainly the the 18th century and 19th century of aspiring to be, if you will, like landed gentry. Was that part of the mystique that um, he was trying to uh, bring into fruition?
2: The Tidewater intellectual elite would join him, but Charleston is the um, heart of a separate nation, the Deep South, which was the, the Tidewaters, as you describe, it was founded, the Chesapeake country and the like was founded by, the lesser sons of English gentry, who in the um, 1600s, they were the second, third, fourth sons who would not inherit the manor at home. And they came to the new world with the prospect of being able to recreate the sort of semi-feudal manorial system of the English countryside to be able to set up their own, you know, Lord Grantham-like, you know, mm-hmm. Downton Abbey mm-hmm. sort of society of the, uh, of the 17th century. But The Deep South, where Sims was from, was an entirely different creature. Flatlands. Um, It was was formed uh, in the lowlands, starting around Charleston, and then spread over what we think of sometimes as the Cotton South, as opposed to the Upland or Tobacco South. And it was founded by um, West Indies slave lords from the English island of Barbados, who perfected a chain gang form of brutal slavery on their own island, And running out of space there had come to the colony of the Carolinas to reproduce the society uh, in the uh, subtropical lowlands of the uh, North American continent and did so. So they brought with them oligarchic ideas of a highly hierarchical and stratified society to the winners go the spoils and that society is to serve those on top and that many people should be in servitude, etc. So it it did not have any of the um, ideas of... um, Yes, and there's a noble class, but the noble class has a you know a social responsibilities to the hands around them. There was none of that. It was a much more um Uh, exploitative and declaratively exploitative place where inequality was explicitly championed by many of its thinkers.
0: Well, in this case, it may be hard for you to find a benign aspect to William Gilmore Sims and his uh, national, if not worldview. Um, Certainly, there's malignant parts to it, which are self-evident. If there was a benign, uh, positive side, what was
2: it? Well, for Sims personally, These are, you know, people are complicated. He had many abhorrent ideas. But compared to his contemporaries, what was striking to me digging deep into his life is that uh, he was primarily a novelist. And he, uh, in his novels, wrote about people and strata of society in a a full and even-handed way that other novelists at the time period were scandalized that he would do. He had, you know, a character, a novel written in first person about a murderer, and uh, everyone was appalled that a murderer would be allowed to have agency and unedited thoughts and, and that you would live through their lives. He had uh, uh, many Native American characters who were as fully or better developed than some of the white characters he had in his novels that were set. In the colonial period on the frontier of South Carolina and Mississippi, he understood uh, because he, he traveled through the back country with his father, who was sort of a hard a, a, um, hardscrabble uh, frontiersman who had served under Andrew Jackson in the wars of the Native Americans. He traveled all over the, the, uh, the Southwest when it was still um, you know, barely being uh, colonized and still recovering from uh, conflicts. And the people he wrote about, he listened to them, he understood you know, their way of speaking, the dialects of the Scots-Irish settlers he was among, their ways of life and aspirations to a degree that his contemporaries did not. And so that, um, that wider understanding of experience, especially on sort of a class level, is something that was unusual and really brought a lot of um, life to his work and to his thought although marred by this larger set of values that presumed inferiority and a hierarchy of potentials of humans based on their, essentially on their genetics, although that's not uh, the words he would have expressed it with.
0: Now, one of the most intriguing personalities on the American horizon historically was without question Frederick Douglass. He is a man that was born a slave, and although he never held political office, in a sense became a very influential statesman. Hence, I Suggest that's probably why you uh, elected to consider him at length. Um, We know that he taught himself to read, uh, that he was abused by one Edward Covey, um, that he was eventually um, in relationship, uh, at least of mind and thought to a large extent with Abraham Lincoln, the Republican president. Um, I'm interested initially before we get into Frederick Douglass, Why you selected Frederick Douglass uh, as opposed to somebody like Booker T. Washington or George Washington Carver? Um, What was unique and distinctive about Frederick Douglass?
2: In looking at the, the fight over writing and putting forward the story of the nation, Frederick Douglass is the pivotal figure. I mean, not just as a civil rights figure, but just period for the whole 19th century because He, um, I mean, he became a massive celebrity. He escaped from slavery Mm -hmm. um, using, you know, the most advanced technology of the day he disguised himself as a sailor and boarded what would be like jumping on SpaceX now for a trip to orbit.
0: Yeah, it's a real little, you know, Jimmy Bond here kind of stuff he's yeah. doing.
2: The, the very first railway line in the United States and he boarded it, you know, even though it was closely guarded to make sure that no slaves escaped and everything else. He managed to escape to freedom and the underground railway got him to New Bedford, Massachusetts, where he was working as a day laborer and was discovered by the abolitionists under William Lloyd Garrison. Not only did he have this incredible story to tell, a firsthand story of the experiences and the evils of slavery, but he told it incredibly well. He was a gifted orator, and like you said, he had um, covertly taught himself how to lead uh, as a child and a young man in slavery. And uh, he turned out to be an incredible writer as well. And they put him on the speaking circuit and he quickly became a star. He he broke with the Garrisonians, but became a national and international celebrity, speaking all over the the British Isles and all over the United States, and Canada, and he brought to to what he spoke about to the massive audiences he had, uh, and in his books, which were read, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic, was articulating the Bancroft vision of a civic nationalism of what the United States is about is about. Uh, furthering the ideals in the Declaration of Independence. But unlike Bancroft, he recognized that America had not achieved any of those ideals. It fell way short. He knew firsthand as a slave how just how far short it had fallen and experiencing racism of various kinds in the North. And so he uh, argued in all of his speeches, essentially, that Americans, that white Americans, needed to finally end this hypocrisy and achieve these wonderful ideals. And he spoke not just for his fellow people of African descent. His speeches were speaking for, you know, basically everybody whose humanity was contested at the time. Irish immigrants, Chinese immigrants, um, uh, women. He was a close friend of Susan B. Anthony and spoke at the Seneca Falls Convention. So he really fought for this vision but recognizing America with all of its force And in doing so, wrote some of the most compelling articulations of that vision that have ever been put together, much more articulate and convincing than anything that Bancroft wrote, who was rather a pinched and florid fellow. And, you know, nothing would convince Bancroft that America wasn't just destined to fulfill its ideals, not the Civil War, not the failure of Reconstruction and the terrorist campaign by the KKK against African-American political emancipation, nothing at all. But Frederick Douglass did, and that's why he's such an important figure, and like you said, personally met during the Civil War with Lincoln on multiple occasions and helped influence his, his thinking, the president's thinking, towards his step-by-step moves to finally, at the, in the Gettysburg Address, declare that the Civil War was about these fundamental civic values and protecting them, which is not where he started. And it took he was, even Bancroft met with him as well, pushing him, but Douglas did at different times and separately, and it all had an effect that eventually led to, to Lincoln's own words, which we all you know, know so well, that are also defending this civic national tradition.
0: So essentially, Frederick Douglas uh, was a forerunner of the approach that Dr. King took of holding up the United States Constitution to its own people and saying, in essence, as he said in 1963 on the Mall... Uh, you've given us a bad check and we've come now to, to claim that check.
2: Absolutely. I mean I, I'm not an a Martin Luther King scholar, but my understanding is from looking at the text of that and some of the speeches of Douglas that he was intentionally paraphrasing some of the things Douglas had said in making those remarks. Um and that, you know, he certainly would have known Douglass's speeches and that they're both absolutely part of a, a very similar tradition and making um very similar arguments, though, you know, a century apart. <laughs>
0: Well, to be fair to the other two gentlemen whose names we've invoked regarding um, issues of being benign or malignant, I can't think of anything malignant about Frederick Douglass, nor do I suppose you can. But there was—was was there anything that perhaps um, was not fully thought out on the part of Douglass?
2: Well, I mean, if you were to try to, you know, poke holes at Douglass, you know, his um, to the degree to which he would be militant to stop the slave lords of the South was up for debate, and he did associate with John Brown very closely uh, for reasons that you can understand, but even perhaps with the knowledge that John Brown had, you know, <laughs> gone about in the Kansas, Kansas territory uh, murdering innocent people um, who weren't slaveholders themselves, but simply, um, you know, not sufficiently um, condemnatory of slavery, you know, in front of their children. He, was, he did some pretty awful things that Douglas may have been aware of, and still was willing to align with them because of the horrors of slavery. So those are some of the things you can debate about just how how far he went at different times. But in general, yeah, his is uh, overall what Douglas's message is, is um, is an Im- an important invocation of our ideals and the need to actually aspire to them and and achieve them, written often in some of the most difficult and perilous times for those ideals in our country's history. Not just during the Civil War, but during Reconstruction and the collapse of Reconstruction, which Douglas witnessed.
0: Well said. Well, now let's continue. Uh, but before we do, let me remind you, if you're just joining us in this conversation, you are, in fact, listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and I'm utterly delighted to have author and historian Colin Woodard with us. Most of you probably know him from his prior works, American Nations, Certainly American Character. And we've been examining his latest book, which is entitled Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of the United States Nationhood. And we've been looking at, or are in the process of looking at, five personalities, George Bancroft, William Gilmore Sims, and we've just completed talking about Frederick Douglass. Now we move on to a lightning rod of the moment, at least on the Princeton campus, where um, this name invokes all kinds of uh, reactions, President Woodrow Wilson. Tell us about him.
2: Yeah, so Woodrow Wilson becomes part of this story because my goal in writing Union was to find, you know, who started this, you know, con- this this creation of the story of the United States nationhood. And I wanted to carry the story until one idea, one one story had become, at least for a time, the consensus dominant viewpoint across the United States, across the regions. Because clearly at the very beginning it was strongly contested on regional grounds. And then there was a civil war essentially fought over this vision. But at what point did one of the visions finally triumph? And that would be where I would close the book. And if it said that the South You know, lost the Civil War, but won the peace. It's Woodrow Wilson's ascension to the White House that is the capstone on that victory. And Woodrow Wilson was, you know, he's been somehow cast as a governor of New Jersey and a Princeton president. He was raised in the Deep South. In Augusta, Georgia, and in during the Civil War, and in the ashes of Columbia, South Carolina, the South Carolina capital after Sherman had burnt it in the aftermath of the Civil War, he was the son of the most prominent uh, clergyman in the Confederate Church of the uh, Presbyterian Church, a uh, man who made his fame for a sermon that was widely published and distributed in the South, arguing that slavery was ordained by God, and he you know was. Um, you know, completely bathed and raised in a white supremacist environment and held very extreme and orthodox white supremacist views throughout his life. They're encoded in the academic works he wrote in his books, including the history of the, uh, of the American people. Um, and he uh, then expressed them when he was actually elected, the first Do- deep southerner elected to the presidency since the Civil War. I believe in since before the Civil War, uh, when he came into office, uh, he actually segregated the federal government. He um, championed the first Hollywood blockbuster film, The Birth of a Nation, which was uh, co-produced by Thomas Dixon Jr., one of his good friends and graduate school buddies, uh, who had written the book upon which the movie was based on, and this was a movie which glorified the uh, Ku Klux Klans. Um, Reign of terror against African Americans in the South to reverse their political emancipation and done so in the most crude fashions possible. And in some of the most outrageous scenes, remember it's a silent movie, placards appeared, essentially footnoting and, and um, substantiating their argument, placards quoting from Woodrow Wilson's history of the American people that followed on through. And this film was in enormous trouble when it was released in 1915 because it cost a gazillion dollars to make. And uh, at that time, it was uh, the, the courts had not decided that the First Amendment uh, allowed for protected speech of artists that artistic productions were protected speech. So uh, states and cities often censored theater productions and now the new moving pictures that were considered to be, um, you know, decadent to public morals. And there were massive protests in the streets, in cities across the country to stop this film from being shown because of its outrageous uh, depiction of African-Americans and distortion of history. And there was a very real chance that in the major markets the film's financial success depended on, it would be censored and Thomas Dixon Jr. and Griffith's co-producer would be bankrupted. So Dixon went to his friend Woodrow Wilson, who screened it in the White House for his cabinet. And then the following day, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, uh, Justice uh, White, uh, screened it for the other Supreme Court justices and leaders, agreed to, to screen it for other uh, Supreme Court justices and congressional leaders in a grand ballroom in the Capitol because he himself had been a member of the Klan and thought the movie was great. And because of this, the, the film was rescued, a film that then inspired the second Ku Klux Klan uh, to appear. And even Wilson's most um, storied accomplishments uh, in foreign policy, his idealistic campaign to remake a peaceful world after World War I with his 14 points for a League of Nations uh, articulated at the Great Peace Conference in Paris, what's forgotten is that his 14 points uh, included essentially the creation of an organization that would give self-determination to the um, European peoples who'd been trapped in the uh, Axis powers empires so that the Serbs and Poles and Hungarians and Bulgarians would receive uh, uh, self-government in their own states, but that the non-white peoples who had been colonial subjects of these same powers in the Middle East and Asia and Oceania would not receive such things. In fact, would instead be organized into essentially a racial hierarchy of League of Nations mandates, Class A, Class B, and Class C, based on their supposedly inherent ability to govern themselves or not, and the level of um, essentially white superpower tutelage they would require to do so. And finally, at the peace conference, Japan came forward to add a 15th point to, uh, to the peace plan, which was a measure which would prohibit racial discrimination by member states. And uh, it passed 11 to 5. And then Woodrow Wilson, who was presiding over the proceedings as chairman, arbitrarily declared that it had failed because the decision was not unanimous, even though that was not the precedent of any of the other votes that had taken place. So uh, what I'm saying is he was not just a... Person that um, Princeton and other institutions have revered for doing great things, who also happen to have reprehensible views, his core accomplishments are reprehensible things. And so it's, he's sort of more akin to the Confederate leaders whose statues are being toppled than to some of other figures like Jefferson or Washington, who we have other reasons to celebrate, who may also have come up short in, in many things. Uh, that are not expressly what we've been celebrating and putting monuments up for. So for Princeton to remove him, I think, was probably long in coming, the the former ones.
0: Let's look at the fifth personality, which is Frederick Jackson Turner. Tell us about him.
2: Yeah, so Turner is the person who, when you think, when Americans think of themselves as being a frontiers people, and that what shaped us was our experience in, you know, clean skin caps and uh and cowboy and indian movies and all of those tropes from mid-20th century america would that include
0: daniel boone and and you know people like um uh, David crockett Crockett, and john
2: wayne people both historical west young man all of that and that that is somehow the um an essential element of americanness and that the experience of uh, colonizing, uh, conquering, or settling, or however you want to look at it, the Western United States is what Finally, made Americans Americans and bonded them together. Now, that basically the font of that idea comes from Frederick Jackson Turner, who, unlike all the other people we've been talking to and most of the intelligentsia, if you will, of the late 19th century, he wasn't from the eastern seaboard. He was from the west, which at that time was, you know, included the Midwest. He was from Wisconsin. He'd grown up. Uh, been a child during the Civil War when when, uh, Western Wisconsin was still very much the frontier. And he came uh, and brought a whole different interpretation to the the conversation. And his idea set forth in his famous frontier thesis was that essentially Americans achieved their civic national vision, this vision that we've talked about from Bancroft uh, forward, that they achieved it only when the settlers crossed the Appalachians and started settling the the Mississippi Valley and the far west. And that divorced from history, now far, far away from both Europe and the European contamination, the old world contamination of the eastern seaboard and its feudal uh, connotations and its history, they were finally in what Turner imagined to be an Indianic environment, where um, they were able to adapt to this new environment and Become good, small r Republican citizens. That they were uh, they were um, self starters, good at self government, at respecting one another, and participating in civics. And that this was the experiment and the experience that brought Americans together. It substituted in Bancroft this this destiny to take over the West that had supposedly been um, cast, you know, uh, granted by God, and he substituted out God for the latest in science, which was. Darwinian revelations. And he was essentially saying that humans and human societies adapt like organisms to new environments and the natural environment and conditions of the West, he thought, would cause the settlers to adapt and become, in essence, Americans with the characteristics that were American. The problem was he would soon discover after the frontier thesis took off and was embraced by academic and then popular culture and started appearing in you know books and textbooks and the way history was written and all of these mid-20th century um, popular culture um, 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 vehicles that we were just mentioning, uh, he realized as he did his research that the data wasn't really showing that that's what happened when settlers crossed into the West. That in fact, stubbornly, those settlers who'd come out of New England and the New England settled upstate of New York Stubbornly behaved in a political fashion and in uh, attitudes, building styles, or anything he looked at, stubbornly behaved entirely differently from, say, the Appalachian stream that had come out of uh, out of upland Virginia and Kentucky and rafted down the Ohio River and settled the lower tiers. Of the, uh, of the lower Great Lakes states, like Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and large parts of Missouri and so on, that they, um, they weren't growing together, and it frustrated him. He kept working towards writing um, a sort of magnum opus, which was going to be a book uh, arguing that to really understand the United States, its history, and its current political experiences, you had to understand the differences between its sections, It's regional cultures. And I did not know anything about all of this when I was writing American Nations a decade ago, but essentially he was groping towards what could have been a book very much like American Nations, having realized the frontier thesis was thrown off. So, um, but unfortunately for him, like a band who has a number one hit single early in their careers. And then when they go on tour, nobody wants to hear their new stuff. Essentially you couldn't get anyone to listen to him when he produced essays and stuff Arguing that the you know not don't pay attention to the frontier, pay attention to the sections. But Americans loved the frontier idea because it was optimistic. It provided a solution that uh, North and South could both agree upon, and uh, and it ignored, of course, the moral complications of the fact that uh, the West had not been empty; that there was a conquest and sometimes a very brutal one of the Native American inhabitants. None of that was uh, sullied his narrative, which um which probably helped make it particularly palatable and in turn of the 20th century America.
0: You're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. My guest I'm so delighted to have is Colin Woodard. Uh, He has thought greatly and deeply and written extensively and put a lot of labor, mental and otherwise, into the creation of his latest tomb entitled Union, the struggle to forge the story of United States nationhood. Um, historians can uh, obviously uh, hither and dither about who is going to be significant in the future. I do not expect you to be a soothsayer um, uh, at all. But at the moment, as we're trying to work our way through this clearly – divided situation. It was Jesus who initially said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And then it was an echo with our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, saying the same thing. We do seem to be a divided house, or at least an extremely arguing house at the moment. Who do you think will most likely um, uh, be a pivotal voice for how we change the narrative of who we are as a people?
2: I'm not sure I know who specifically it will be. And there's many voices out there who could potentially become that. And today we live in such a cacophony compared to the 19th and early 20th century Hmm. between all the mechanisms we have to communicate and the different stations we have to watch, our social media feeds, it's hard to have the same dominance over a conversation that one could have had 100 or 200 years ago. So there will probably be many more voices rather than a few enormous resounding ones. And that's fine, but it makes it all the much harder to identify which ones will be the, the key nodes around which the thoughts will happen. But what I'm certain of is that it is true that our country is our federation is in enormous peril i was arguing that when american nations came out in 2011 and when american character a book about the the struggle between these regions between individual liberty and the common good that we were in in peril then and we certainly are now where the glue that holds us together has been has has been d- dissolved by solvents and that the enormous differences in attitudes and political preferences and fundamental ideas, and even ideas about, you know, whether the civic national or the ethno-national myth is the appropriate one, have strong regional variations. At a time when, under President Trump, the federal government has abdicated from many of its primary responsibilities, including leading, a you know, a struggle against an existential threat from a pandemic, leaving the states and regions to themselves to respond on their own to a great degree, has only increased the divide. So we do need to rediscover um, the common threads that hold us together if the Federation is to survive, and the building blocks for that exist within the civic national tradition we've been talking about. And we desperately need to re-embrace, update, and rejuvenate a civic national tradition drawing back to these things that we're talking about in the declaration. And I hope that, uh, union in articulating and telling the backstory to this struggle will provide some grist and fodder for those, um, trying to put forward this, this, uh, vision and also for a hopefully final vanquishing of the alternative one, which can bring only destruction.
0: At the dawn of history, people would gather around wells, there was a commonality of need and so you would draw from the well and people would interact with each other. Uh, And then there were variations of villages, as we know, and eventual townships and cities. Uh, Our commonality used to be media, I'm talking back in the days of in the United States broadcasting three basic networks, CBS, NBC, ABC, PBS kind of out there on on its fringe um and that changed we went from broadcasting to narrowcasting where people pull from if you will their own well uh, or a well shared with very few is that part of the disunity that we're experiencing today in america
2: uh, absolutely i mean the the fracturing of the way that we interact with ideas the way we form our opinions and now um with the um, social media, the fact that the well you're drinking from isn't chosen by you at all—in the context of something like Facebook, an algorithm guided by you know perhaps advertiser preferences or who knows what—decides what water will appear in your well and who else will and won't be drinking from it. Something that is divorced um, from geography entirely, from your community, where you're sorted in your given. What um, will agitate you and cause you to click more? <laughs> and so those are all very destructive forces. They, and when meeting an environment where you have a balkanized and divided federation to begin with, to add that uh, on top of it only accelerates the dangers of uh, fracture and disunity along with you know i work in the journalism field along with disinformation and enabling of demagogues both here and in other countries that is a very dangerous force and probably contributes to the crisis that is going on in liberal democracies that is you know what we used to call western democracies um all around the world not just in the united states
0: i don't mean to presume anything do you have uh, do you have children
2: uh yes uh, a couple um pretty young too so it keeps me on my feet
0: okay see I presume you don't have grandchildren yet
2: no it'll be sometime (laughs) okay well
0: let's pretend it's sometime okay and I like to ask questions like this you have a grandchild and uh, he or she is six and they crawl up onto your lap and they say grandpa what is America about what will you say
2: well this will be some decades ahead, because my youngest is under six, but imagining what the world might be like in that time period and what America is about, I hope that the answer will be that it's ultimately about those shared ideals we've been talking about in the Declaration and our aspirational pursuit of them. What I fear it will be is that they will ask that question in past tense because the United States will no longer exist, having fractured or devolved in some form, either through another external crisis or not. And I very much hope that's not what happens, because I think that would lead to a more unstable and impoverished world, both for for a potential grandchildren uh, in the future, uh, but also for just the world's stability in general.
0: Well, on that ominous note, I want to thank you, Mr. Colin Woodard, for being a part of Watching America. His latest book is entitled Union or capitalize capital U, capital N, capital I, capital O, capital N, the struggle to forge the story of United States nationhood. I have to tell you, Mr. Woodward, um, you've been an utter delight, uh, very invigorating, stirring up thought, and uh, extremely informative, and we are so grateful for your time having been spent with us. I want to wish you great blessings, and thank you so much for being a part of Watching America.
2: Thank you. I really enjoyed it myself.
0: Blessings. Take care. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dow. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm Watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.